We confess with this song and with the scriptures that Jesus Christ is our Savior, Deliverer, and Lord. He has brought us out of the Egypt of sin unto everlasting and eternal life by the power of his saving work. It is to him that we grant, we give our glory and our praise. It is to him that we ascribe all of the adulation, all of the confessions of faith that he deserves. It is to him that we bow this day, recognizing that he is our Lord and Savior. And it is on account of this great work, we acknowledge that we have ability to see your scriptures because the Spirit has fundamentally changed us. We ask that the Spirit would work further in our lives and hearts today to cause us to our hearts to skip with joy as we behold the glories of the gospel and the glories of Christ revealed through all of the pages of your holy word, even as we see them in the few select passages we have time to uh, study this day. In all of this, may your church be equipped, Father, and may you be glorified and proclaimed to the ends of the earth through the advancing of your gospel and kingdom. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. This morning we turn to the scriptures in the book of the Psalms. So turn with me to Psalm 95 if you would. The title of this morning's message is God's Voice Today. God's voice today. Now, you could probably buy any number of books, perhaps a hundred or so, from Christian book distributors or some other outfit, Christian bookstore, that claims to train you to teach and to hear God's voice. But I wonder if the source and the idea of God speaking is the same as what is conveyed in the Holy Scriptures and especially in Psalm 95, leading us to ask the question, what is God's voice today? Where is God's voice to be heard? How can we hear God's voice? Yes, even today. Well, there is a call to hear the voice of God indeed of the children of the Lord at the time that Psalm 95 was written as a call to worship and as an an arresting of the attention of the gathered assembly, even in ancient Israel. Psalm 95 verse 7, the latter portion of the verse says, today, if you hear his voice, And then proceeds a warning. But what has preceded that is a directive to direct attention, joyful noise, songs of praise to the Lord who is above all gods and has done great things for us. This is the voice of the Lord for the day that Psalm 95 was penned and sung. This voice yet remains today for us. It is in our ears as we hear the words of God read, proclaimed from his holy scripture. The aim of this morning's message, therefore, is to call the church to worship according to the voice of God in his holy word. Let us pray that we would hear the voice of God today as his word is proclaimed. In honor and reverence of the scriptures, could I ask you to stand one more time as we hear the word of God proclaimed this day. This is Psalm 95, verses 1 through the end of the chapter, verse 11. Hear now God's holy, infallible word. O come, Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also are his also. The sea is his for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. 
Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, verse eight, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of God. You may be seated. A rich psalm indeed, drawing on uh, many points in Scripture, especially the Exodus. If you have a thumb in Exodus 15 or thereabouts, we will touch upon some passages that recall the historical occasion of Psalm 95 in a moment. Let me give you a brief introduction. There's another text you might mark for future study. This would be Nehemiah chapter 9. The liturgical context, that is the worship order or the, uh, basically the structure of what might have been a worship service of the day, the context for Psalm 95 involved the ordinances and the observances prescribed for public worship in the life of the people of God in the Old Testament. An order of service would be presided over by the Levitical officers. These would be the worship leaders of sorts, the priestly class, if you will, those who are called and appointed by God to issue the call to worship, to gather the assembly, to point their uh, praises heavenward as it were. The priestly rites and regular assembly would be called to ascribe glory to the Lord. Glory to the Lord, Yahweh, who was Israel's covenant hope, glorious shepherd, and triumphant savior. In that chapter I mentioned a moment ago, Nehemiah 9, we are provided an order of worship that coincides with a historical occasion of reinstituting worship in the sanctuary of God, again established among his people. This is after the Exodus, the Israelites come back to Jerusalem, and then they begin to worship the Lord as he has commanded once again. And so the Levites lead the people in several things. And among them, the reading of the word of God, as I recall, for a quarter of a day, the singing of praises to the Lord and the announcing of his great works among them. All of this is prefaced by the repentance of the people for being negligent in these duties during those many years of exile. A little background, if you want to see a little window, the imagination open to what a worship service around the era of Psalm 95 when it was written might have looked like. Nehemiah 9 provides an order of worship coinciding with the historical occasion of reinstituting worship in the sanctuary of God returning to the people. The psalm itself, Psalm 95, references formative events in the history and the calling of the people of God, which coincide with divine revelation. So Nehemiah 9 was a signal moment in the history of God's people, but there were other signal moments. Perhaps the chief among them would be the Exodus event, where the people of God were delivered from the clutches of Egypt and all of the works, the provision and the direction and the revelation of the Lord that attended the Israelites at that time, they become milestones, fixtures, whereby we understand as the people of God, the nature of God and his interaction with his own. They reveal to us a pattern of God's glory among his people. 
These are the formative events in the history and calling of the people of God. And they coincide with the word of God, his divine or special revelation. These Exodus moments of triumph were designed to demonstrate the glory of God and gather the people in worship, worship that would be recurring, that would happen regularly. Nevertheless, as the warning language at the tail end of Psalm 95 indicates, as well as the experience of the Israelites in the wilderness, the corrosive nature of our sinfulness that demonstrates itself in unbelief, just fatigue, growing weary and tired, sometimes cynicism and doubt, all of these corrosive things began to cloud the affections, the desires, the motivations of the Israelites on their promised land journey. And so they needed further calls to worship, that their attention might be arrested as they remembered the works of the Lord among them and took seriously the warnings against faithlessness. The last song that we sung uh, today begged us to remember that Jesus brought us out of our own Egypt experience, as it were, a theme for today's service. What is this? It is a call to worship. It's arresting the attention of the hearers who have been the direct beneficiaries of the salvation of our Lord, who have received a changed heart, a new life, who have received a new relationship with the most holy God. It is arresting our attention to remember that great work as a call to worship, that we might reorder our priorities and affections heavenward and direct to the Lord the glory, the worship that he deserves. Here's a heading for us today as we dig into this psalm. The voice of the Lord in the life of a believer, or the life of mankind, I should say. The voice of God in the life of mankind. You could say in the experience of man. And the voice of the Lord does several things in our text today. Number one, inspires worship. The voice of God we see inspiring the worshiper in verses 1 through 7. Secondly, we see the voice of the Lord condemning the skeptic in verses 8 through 11. And thirdly, this morning, I'd like to close with the voice of the Lord warning the complacent. And this comes from a direct citation of Psalm 95 in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. So will we hear the voice of the Lord today? Will we hear the voice of the Lord inspiring the worshiper from Psalm 95, 1 through 7? condemning the skeptic in verses 8 through 11 and warning the complacent in these passages from the Old Testament as well as Hebrews reiterates them, chapters 3 and 4. That's a basic structure for you. First of all, the voice of God in the life of man inspiring the worshiper. Our psalmist opens with a call to worship. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the Lord, the rock of our salvation. Young people in the room, I asked this question in family worship last night, so don't answer my kids, but the rest of you, who was the first person to identify Yahweh, to identify God as the rock? Who is the first person in the scripture to identify God as the rock? Any of you kids know? Give you a hint. Great prophet, Old Testament, powerful leader. Who do you guys think it was? Joseph, Noah, not quite. Oh, someone said Moses. Who said Moses? 
Moses. That is correct. Moses identified the Lord as the rock. This is no surprise. The rock features prominently in the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt, not only as a monument or memorial of provision whereby water miraculously surged forth from this inanimate object, you know, this granite face or whatever it was, but also because it was a warning to the people who complained against the Lord. The Lord is a rock. He is the foundation whereby a people are built. The Lord is a rock whereby from him spews forth the source of life-sustaining power in our wilderness desert. The Lord is the rock. He will not be messed with. The New Testament echoes this language and builds on it. The Lord is the rock who has become, become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The Lord is the rock who grounds the unbeliever, the insolent rebel to powder if he does not bow before him. The Lord is a rock. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. So do you hear the authority? Do you hear the sober call behind these words, this call to worship? Verse two, come, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. In these two verses, notice two things at least. First of all, an attitude of worship. What is the posture? What is the disposition of the follower of the Lord, the believer, his heart in relationship to the rock? It is one of thanksgiving. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Cultivate within your heart, hearers, this call to worship. Thanksgiving on account of the rock's provision for you, the salvation provided for you in the wilderness. Come before the Lord with this attitude of overflowing, uh, great, or overflowing gratitude and joy because what, of what God has done for you. Now, that's the attitude. if that is the attitude of worship in this first call, then what are the expressions <clears throat> that are endorsed by the author? Two things at least, joyful noise, songs of praise. Oh, come, let us sing. Singing is an expression of worship that is endorsed and called for in this attention-arresting moment as this song goes forth, this call to worship goes forth. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. And hence, and thus, we sing this morning. We have sung this morning. Let us make a joyful noise, a second expression of worship, a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. So more than once, our author calls our attention to worship the Almighty and to do so with expressions of joy and thanksgiving, taking the form of a joyful noise and songs of praise. Turn with me to Exodus 15. This is, the mo- this is likely the moment predominantly in the background of the author of this psalm as he writes, informing the people to turn their attention to their most holy God who has saved them. As he does so, we're reminded of these moments in the experience of the people of God. Notice Exodus 15:1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. 
the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. What has just happened? The Red Sea has parted, his people have safely crossed, and then the sea has collapsed upon the enemies, the armies that Pharaoh boasted, destroying them, and one fell swoop of his sovereign hand. The hand of the one the psalm later describes as being Lord over, yes, the sea and even dry land. He's used these two elements to save his people and to destroy his enemies in one glorious act of triumphant redemption and deliverance. Thus, the people worship the Lord with joy and no doubt thankfulness, praising him because he has triumphed gloriously over their enemies. Evidence to the fact Horses and riders are floating belly up in the Red Sea in front of them. Verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my song. So here's this expression. This song is coming forth inspired by these events. And he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. Again, praise, song, and adulation, worship for the Lord for triumphing gloriously. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord, again, the covenant high holy name, Yahweh, is invoked here. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh and chariots and his host he has cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. And it goes on to describe what has happened. Notice how there is a refrain that reappears in our text, though, and here in Exodus 15, verse 20. Then Miriam, who is Miriam? Kids, do you remember who she was? Miriam was related to who? Does anyone know? Moses, it was his, Moses' sister. Then Miriam the prophetess, I'm sorry, did I say Moses? <laughs> I'm correcting myself here. The sister of not Moses, but Aaron, took a tambourine. Wait, are they brothers anyways? I'm getting myself confused. So then Miriam, sister of Aaron and Moses, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has, again, keywords, triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So you see, at this moment, the voice of the Lord has been revealed to the people. He has announced through his servant Moses that he will deliver them on the Passover day. <clears throat> he has announced through his manifold acts in creation his sovereign miracle of pushing back the seas, that a way is made straight through the wilderness for them to pass safely. He has proclaimed the destruction of their enemies and manifest the same as the seas drown Pharaoh's armies. And how do the people react to this voice of the Lord? They do so in joyous songs of thanksgiving, expressions of worship, including this jubilant praise, these songs of worship, this joyful noise, and even tambourines that are employed to respond to the voice of God, which inspired this moment of worship. Secondly, we have more details on the occasion back in Psalm 95. We have this call to worship. We have an expression of worship. And then we have an occasion for worship in verses 3 through 5. Why are we singing? For the Lord is a great God. And a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. This is the occasion for worship. 
drawing the attention of the people of God to the voice of God in nature as we see his works evident around us and in his special revelation in his recorded word, victoriously triumphing over his enemies, for example, as we've already read, we have an occasion for worship. Several things to illustrate this poetically, our author. First of all, he proclaims a supernatural dominance. He says, of all the concepts of God that exist in the world today, the Lord is greater than them all. Every single one is a foolhardy. It is a blurry attempt. It is a vain imagination. It is a figment of some fallen man's overactive, uh, creative uh, idea to create a religion and a concept of a higher power by which he ascribes, you know, whatever the uh, order of the universe or hopes and prays that his crops might be blessed, so on and so forth. These are the concepts of God that are the duly narrative in the world, the culture, the society, the other nations around the worshipers of the true God, namely, namely Israel. But when you compare the works of the greatest empire the earth may have ever known, that of ancient Egypt, if we judge it by the mighty things they built and the relative power and dominance that they had as an empire over the known world at that time, perhaps Egypt was the greatest empire that ever graced the surface for the longest amount of time. But how did they stand up against the wonders of the almighty God? Why did it take <clears throat> the answer to that question is related to the answer to this. Why did God wait until 10 plagues had fallen upon Egypt before he finally delivered his people? Did he do so because that's what it took to finally get Pharaoh to go along with his will? There was a greater purpose indeed. The reason that God sent 10 plagues, he says to us in the scripture, I will show my wonders. You think Pharaoh is impressive? You think he has great authority and power? Watch as I reduce him to a pitiful, scratching mess in the corner of a room with servants waving wands of peacock feathers to try to get these biting lice off his skin. You think Pharaoh was impressive and powerful and boasts worldly wealth beyond the imagination? Watch as I strike the river, the source of life and vitality in that region, and that which was a symbol for life instantly becomes a symbol of death, and it runs through and through with blood. I will show Pharaoh my wonders. Some commentators have said that if you stack up the, you know, the popular pantheon, that is, list of gods in Egypt, each one of their gods corresponds with a wonder that God did to destroy and to demonstrate his supernatural dominance over any other idea, philosophy, false God, notion of man that would seek to compete with him for authority. This was the occasion for worship back in Exodus 15. Notice verse 11, songs were sung according to this theme, including the one we touched on already. Verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Pharaoh, <clears throat> Zeus, Hermes, whatever the gods, I can't think of, Ra, uh, Ishtar, whatever, Baal. No, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Verse 12, you stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. Later it says, the peoples have heard, verse 14. 
they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Felicia. The chiefs of Edom are dismayed. Why are the Edomites, the Philistines, the Moabites quaking in their boots? Why are they so paralyzed with fear? Because they fear the God of the Israelites who has demonstrated his power in defeating Pharaoh and his armies more than they believe their God will save them. Why? Because they have seen empirical evidence of the sovereignty of the Lord and his supernatural dominance over every other idea or notion of authority. There is another way, poetically, two other expressions poetically in these verses that the psalmist uses to describe the glory of the Lord, the occasion for worship. Not only is he predominant, the Lord, the great God, the great King above all gods, but verses four and five describe his power this way. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are his also. So you see a range in the poetic language from the depths of the earth to the heights of the mountains. He is Lord of them all. We have phrases like this, uh, figures of speech, idioms that we're familiar with, from the east to the west. It's an expression of range, as far as we can imagine. These poetic devices are similar. Verse 5, the sea is his, for he has made it. His hands formed the dry land. From the sea to the dry land, if you see a picture, an aerial view of our world, those are the two predominant elements upon the surface of the earth, sea water, and dry land. And God is sovereign over both. As we mentioned before, he demonstrated this sovereignty in parting the sea to create dry land for his people to cross and then closing the sea on his enemies to destroy them in one fell swoop. This is the occasion for worship. Now, you can look uh, even through scientific Inquiry into the world as we see it today, into the furthest reaches of the universe. And that can be a powerful inspiration for worshiping the Lord. As we have noted, Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Can anyone finish that verse? The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies show his handiwork. Thanks, Judah. That's correct. The skies reveal the glory of God. So from the heights of the heavens... To the depths of the earth, the Lord is worthy of praise. All creation preaches that we should worship the God who is responsible for creating this unfathomable universe and beauty and scope before us. A call to worship, an occasion for worship, and then there's a call again in verse 6. There's sort of a pattern here. Call, occasion, call, occasion. Verse 6 of Psalm 95. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So in this pattern of this song, we have a sort of repetition. It's a sort of uh, prescription, if you will, to uh, draw people's attention to the glory of the Lord. Uh, recall something that he has done or call people to worship. Recall something that he has done. Call them to worship. Recall what he has done. There is in God's ordination a repetition of means that he has provided of grace for us. We sometimes call them the means of grace. Last week was Communion Sunday. And Communion Sunday, similar to the Passover Feast of Old, where we have its details laid out in Exodus 12, we remember 
that Jesus led us out of Egypt as we have sung. We remember regularly, it's pointing us back to the occasion, to the works of God. Without the broken body and shed blood of Christ, we would not be saved. Children, again, another question for you. What does the bread represent at the Lord's table? What does the bread remind us of? Jesus' body, that's correct. And what does the juice remind us of at communion? Jesus' blood, that is correct. And the reason that that bread and juice is before us regularly is to teach the children, just as was commanded in Exodus 12, that without God's intervention, without a sacrifice provided, without shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Without a Passover lamb, there is no salvation. And so in line with this sort of pattern of calling our attention, call to worship and call to occasion, we have this taking the shape or Psalm 95 taking this shape. Verse six, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. If the attitude of worship in the first call, verses one and two is thanksgiving, perhaps we could describe the attitude of worship in the second call as reverence. There is sort of a holy awe and fear. There is sort of a somber captivating of the attention such that it might move you to these worship expressions, kneeling and bowing before the Lord. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So again, we see gloriously provided a range of worship expression that is appropriate. After all, there's such a range of the glories of the Lord. How do we respond in this call to worship on account of these magnificent glories of our Lord? How should we respond? We should respond with joy. We should respond with songs of praise. We should respond with thankfulness, with a joyful noise. But we should also respond in kneeling before the Lord, an expression of humility, of foregoing any rights we may be tempted to assert and bowing before his lordship over us. Psalm 2 reminds kings, yes, even kings, pharaohs, if you will, presidents in the modern day to do the same. Kiss the son, again, an expression of submission, humility, and worship, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. It's a call for kings to worship the king of kings. Bow down, kneel before the Lord. This, these are expressions of worship that are worthy of the works of our God. <clears throat> this is a recurring call, as I've mentioned before. Let's touch upon Exodus 12. Exodus 12, the people were to remember regularly the works of God among them. I just want to touch upon a few verses that illustrate this theme, poetically demonstrated in Psalm 95, but prescribed by order of the Passover in Exodus 12. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. I only read that to note that the people of God were called to mark time forever after this moment by the event of their deliverance from Egypt. Again, calling their attention to this occasion for worship. He says, for this day shall be for you a memorial day, verse 14, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Verse 24, you shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. 
And when you come into the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses, the people of Israel in Egypt, when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. This reminder that was to be repeated among the people was to point them as a call to worship to the occasion for honoring the Lord. Remember, he has brought you out of Egypt. It's a recurring call. Secondly, there's further occasion that's offered. So again, just to draw your attention to the structure of Psalm 95, we have a call to worship in verses 1 and 2. We have an occasion for worship in verses 3 through 5. We have a second call to worship in verse 6, and we have further occasion in verse 7. Psalm 95, 7, For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. Again, this morning, we sang a rendition of Psalm 23. The Lord is my... I shall not want. The Lord is my... Shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 23 expands on this imagery of ownership and dependency. The Lord is our shepherd. We are his dependents. We are his sheep. He, by his sufficient means, rod, staff, provision of green pastures, leads, guides, and provides for us. And in a verse, our author reminds us of this occasion for worship. He is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Here, the occasion for worship reminds us not only that he is our shepherd, but if you rewind to the tail end of verse 6, he is also our maker. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. He is not just our maker, setting this world into operation by its own, you know, physical and environmental, biological forces, and then leaving it to its own devices. No, he is not only eminent overall, he's not only responsible as the creator, as the divine one who has initiated with his perfect intelligence all the world that we can scientifically study, but he is our God. He is imminent as well. He is relational. He is involved. We are the people of his pasture. These possessive pronouns, his and our, these indicate a relationship. There is something here that's emphasized a covenant kinship, if you will. Covenant meaning relationship, where two parties solemnly agree to promises. And in the case of God, solemnly swearing by himself, you know, there's moments where this covenant, uh, these covenant moments, this covenant of grace, as we generally call it, are identified through the scriptures. We'll touch upon one Lord willing next week in, a, in Genesis chapter 12, one to Abraham. But here we see God laying out the terms, a sacrifice provided and satisfying the conditions whereby he can be in relationship with his people. This, of all things, is an occasion for worship. The fact that we are his sheep, that he takes care of us, though we may be wayward and foolish and stupid, though we may be needing so many things, cannot provide or protect ourselves. Nevertheless, he, the great shepherd, is our God, and he leads us in his pastures. There is a covenant kinship that is celebrated as cause and occasion for worship. His pasture, namely provision for us, chiefly in Jesus Christ. He says, I am the bread of life. He tells the woman at the well, 
Come and from me find the source of living water which will never dry up. He is the manna in the wilderness revealed. He is the rock in the wilderness whereby springs of life-sustaining water spring forth as it were. And what is pictured in this? Pastures, green pastures, provision. This is part and parcel of covenant kinship with the Lord. It is His hand who takes care of us. His careful, gentle, and sometimes corrective conditioning, disciplining hand, steers, guides, corrects, intervenes, takes care of, comforts His people. He does this by the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, who leads and guides us into truth, who convicts us of sin, who advocates for us, who provides for us a knowledge and an understanding of truth. And so we see this idea of God's covenant kinship taking shape through the course of Scripture in redemption. His people, we have an an enduring identity and an eternal hope as His own. So the voice of God in the experience of mankind ought to inspire the worshiper. Inspire through this call from the Scriptures, the voice of God in all redemptive history, remembering the occasions for worship his covenant kinship, his mighty works of deliverance. Second major point this morning, condemning the skeptic. The voice of the Lord in the experience of mankind not only serves to inspire worship, but it also condemns the skeptic. What is a skeptic? It's someone who reserves the right to say, prove it. The Lord announces that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, as we've already stated, through his creation. Romans 1 tells us that there is no one alive or who's ever lived who has an excuse to say, you know, I I didn't have sufficient proof that God existed. You know, I reserve the right to be skeptical. No one will be able to offer that defense before the great throne of judgment one day with any standing. Why? Because God has given sufficient evidence of himself, even in the things that are made. But piling evidence upon evidence, he gives us the record of his his miracles, his supernatural acts, his inscrutable wisdom, as we see it unfold in his holy word. Therefore, a skeptic is in a bad situation indeed. Listen, verse 8, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. What is the bias of the skeptic. The bias of the skeptic is the prove-it mentality, as we see here. The historical example is from Exodus again in chapter 17. I'll read you a couple verses from there. You don't necessarily need to turn there. This is Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord. They camped at Rephidim, There was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? He phrased, test the Lord. But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, 
and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? The skeptics bias. Meribah could be, can be translated place of strife, contention, enmity between the Lord, taking issue with him. Massa can be translated the place of testing. Prove it. Show yourself to me. If you th- say you are who you, I th- or, or if you really are who you say you are, then give me water right now. I'm thirsty. I demand that you answer me in this way right now, or I'm not going to be all uh, on board with this exodus out of Egypt thing. Why don't we just go back? We had leeks and onions. Sure, we had slave labor, but at least we had a roof over our head and food to eat. And I'm not so sure anymore out here. This was the attitude of the skeptic, if you will. This was the people in their insolence, in their rebellion, an insolent posture, which was took the shape of prescribing a test for the Lord and demanding proof of his existence. We must be very careful not to adopt this posture and attitude. Verse 9, the psalmist again, Psalm 95, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Saints, you may not know why God waits for the answer to your desperate prayer. You may not know why he has prescribed any number of trial and affliction in your life. But one thing you may not do is put him to the test and say, if this continues any longer, you must not be the God you said you were. Never find yourself indulging or entertaining that kind of skepticism. As those thoughts come into your mind, repent before the Lord and say to him, you are my good shepherd. And though I may want to struggle against the rod and the staff, though I might chafe at your discipline, nevertheless, your ways are perfect and I am but a stupid sheep. I don't know where the next green pasture is, but you do. I can trust your leading hand. Even if it takes 40 years in the wilderness, even if you go around the same mountain multiple times and part because of judgment for your insolence, there was a segment Joshua and Caleb among them, very small, perhaps those were the only two in their families, who believed the covenant and remained faithful. They entered the promised land. But there was an entire generation, we'll read of in a moment, that died in the wilderness because they did not pass the test at Meribah and Massa, but adopted a different posture. Not one of thanksgiving, not one of reverence. Where were the songs uh, uh, celebrating the triumphal Uh, The glorious triumph, the Lord who has triumphed gloriously. Where were the songs of praise? Where was the joyful noise? Where was the timbrel of Miriam at this moment? Where was the bowing before the Lord? Where was the kneeling before his maker? It was gone. And instead it was replaced with, how dare you? Why have you? Can the pot or can the clay answer to the pot with any justification? I'm sorry, can the clay answer to the potter with any justification? Why have you made me this way? This is the echo of the New Testament, condemning the skeptic for presuming that he has the wisdom 
to judge the character of God. Do not prescribe a test for the Lord. And do not uh, presume to demand that he prove himself in your way to you. This is insolence. This is insubordination. This is rebellion. The voice of the Lord in the experience of mankind condemns the skeptic. Uh, this, what is the skeptic's fate? If one does not repent of this kind of attitude, what happens? Verses 10 and 11 answer in Psalm 95, For 40 years I loathed that generation. Generational, generational uh, judgment is what happens. And said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is what happens. Notice, they have not known my ways. They had, they had known his ways in a sense. They had experienced deliverance through the Red Sea. But what? They had not heeded the call to worship. They had not directed their mind, their attention, their affections to that memorial moment. That is, they were closing their ears to the voice of the Lord. The scriptures rightly say, today if you hear his voice. This is the voice of the Lord echoing forever from that moment of deliverance. This isn't the voice of the Lord, you know, in some supernatural way, bubbling up from the inside of the individual after a long meditation. It's not the voice of the Lord by a certain, you know, uh, idea that you can prophesy or hear his voice in some spectacular, miraculous fashion. No, this is the voice of the Lord in the record of his works, in the history of his redemption that attends his people, that calls them as powerfully in this moment as it did the day when Miriam sang with timbrel, worship me. Will we hear the call? They have not known my ways. In other words, their hearts have been corrupted to care more about their physical thirst and their daily needs and their personal comfort than the fact that God who moved the seas apart to create a way of safety will provide for them water in the wilderness. The absurdity of unbelief and the skeptic's fate are illustrated in our passage today. There's a generational judgment that they can expect and there is the promise of Eden close, closing. Eden's gate closed, if you will. Verse 11, Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You know, we've been studying in Genesis and you could just about structure all of Scripture as the revelation in part, of God's means whereby we can pass through that guarded gate of Eden and have relationship and more restored with a holy God. When the scriptures speak of this eternal rest or rest to come, when they speak of entrance into that rest, it recalls this idea of a restoration of relationship, the fruit of covenant kinship in perfect harmony, communion with a holy God. How can this happen when we are just sinners? What well, happens by a substitute sacrifice dying in our place? But without realizing, without realizing the work of the Lord and that substitute dying in our place, the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, then the way to rest remains closed. Pictured in the history of Israel as the promised land, which was barred to the rebels. But then, uh, but then, prefiguring uh, eternal life, the new heavens and new earth, heaven one day when we die 
in future glory. The skeptic's fate is that unless and until he repents, the door of Eden's gate remains closed. Now, God does answer their cries. He answers the cries of the skeptic, but he does so in judgment. Recall the Tower of Babel, which we studied recently. They built a tower so that they could connect with the gods. Did God come down? Well, yes, in a sense he did, but be careful what you wish for. He came down in judgment. The skeptic who demands proof, who puts God to the test, they will see proof that God exists. But unless they repent and humble themselves before him, before they die, that proof of God's existence will come in a day of the Lord, a day of reckoning, a swift judgment, and without repentance, hell eternal. These are the stakes. This is the skeptic's fate. The voice of the Lord in the life of mankind not only inspires the worshipers, the faithful, the believers who bow before him, but it also condemns the skeptic and lays out what they might expect. Let us close this morning in Hebrews chapter 3. Turn there with me, if you would. And let us note how New Testament authors, specifically the author of Hebrews, cites verbatim passages of Psalm 95, therefore illustrating to us its enduring relevance. Are these words that we read all the way back in the Old Testament from Exodus on into the Psalms, are they meaningful for the life of believers today? The author of Hebrews shouts, yes. <clears throat> Hebrews 3, 1 through 2, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So consider and remember Jesus, just like the people were charged in the call to worship in Psalm 95 to consider and remember his acts through Moses. So we see this pattern continuing. We skip forward to verse 7 and read this. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Those words are very familiar to us this morning, especially because we've just read most of them in Psalm 95. He goes on, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So you see the call to worship, look to Jesus, the occasion of his deliverance on your behalf, just like the occasion of God's deliverance through Moses, and the same principles apply. The faithful will look to him. The faithless will put him to the test, demanding proof, remaining skeptical, tempting the Lord. And that's a fearful position to be in. So we have this call to consider and remember Jesus. We have a citation of Psalm 95, and we have a warning application in verses 11 through 13, as we have read and continue, but exhort one another, verse 13, every day, as long as it is called the day, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we share in Christ, if indeed we hold fast our original confidence firm to the end. Here we have... God's voice today and the quest for rest laid out verses uh, 4, 11, or in chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Just kind of continuing this train of thought here. 
As the author of Hebrews unfolds his instruction and exhortation, 4.11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So again, hear God's voice today. It's a call. Hear the voice of the Lord today. It's a call to the scriptures in your quest for rest, if you will, listen to the word of God, which is sharp and active and will remind you as a call to worship, remind you of the occasion to worship, to focus your attention on the Lord, on Christ. And finally, verses 14 through 16 of Hebrews 4, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, Pausing there, this is the greater than Moses. Nevertheless, in the pattern of a deliverer of old, and he continues, let us hold fast our confession, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So you see, Psalm 95 provides enduring relevance, has enduring relevance for us today. As the author of Hebrews begs us to consider the works of God in the work of Christ. He cites Psalm 95 to remind us that the principles still apply. He says that this has a warning application for us right now, even as it applied to the church then. He begs them to listen to the voice of the Lord today in his holy word, which is compared to a double-edged sword. And finally, he points them to confidence in Christ, our high priest, the greater than Aaron, the greater than Moses, the one who has come, the one whom he announced in the very opening pages and words in these last days of his book, Hebrews, the letter. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Which one are you? Are you a worshiper or are you a skeptic? Does the voice of the Lord in the experience of mankind inspire worship from you as you behold the call to worship in Scripture and the occasion for worship in the redemption of His people? Or does the voice of the Lord sound hollow, dissonant, in light of what you are focusing your attention on otherwise? retaining the right to be skeptical, presuming to test and to demand proof of the Lord, thinking you have a right to rebel against these things because of some unexpected fate or uh, some unexpected set of circumstances you're dealing with. Hear the voice of the Lord today. 
in the proclamation of his holy word. Christ Jesus in his high priesthood has delivered you from the bondage of sin. Yes, Christ has led you out of Egypt, the Egypt of your sin. Thereby, by Christ alone, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace and the promise of eternal rest that yet remains. And as we do so, may we offer the posture of thankfulness and joy, of reverence, giving to the Lord suitable expressions of worship. Yes, even joyful song, songs of praise, bowing before our Lord, kneeling before our maker. Why? Because he is worthy and he has delivered us from the bondage of sin. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the voice of our God, which echoes from the pages of scripture, clearly and unequivocally announcing that salvation is offered in his son, second person of the Trinity, Christ alone, who in his incarnation, his high priestly work, his self-giving sacrifice, paved the way for ultimate covenant kinship, the relationship between God and man restored in the broken body and shed blood of Christ. In light of this, may we look forward to, Lord, with anticipation, with suspense even, with joy, with encouragement, each opportunity, each call to worship, to join with your people and to express our appreciation for this mighty work as we gather in this place. Encourage us to continue to do so as we look to our reasons to gather, namely and chiefly that Christ has come. And not only has he come and died for our sin in our place, but he is resurrected and ascended and forever reigns and is our advocate, is our high priest interceding for us on our behalf before the Father, pleading the price of his blood in order to make safe passage for us into pastures of eternal rest where we will enjoy his presence and all of the glorious recreation to come. We thank you for these promises. May we never grow weary of worshiping you on account of them. May we never grow weary of proclaiming them to a world yet lost in sin. And may you use the testimony of your church as a call to worship the one true God uh, forever and ever until you return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.